Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Uh, failed uh, to record uh, live when I give it, gave it, so this is for everyone who didn't get a chance to see it, didn't come to it. So Modernist Crisis, 18, circa 1890, 1920, let's get into this right away. And so for those of you who don't know, uh, introduction to this uh, to this uh, this event in controversial event in, in Catholic history, just a few brief words. The first thing is, of course, what is modernism? And it's a heresy, first of all, uh, defined by the church. We'll get to this, of course, in the lecture. And it's a heresy that probably could have only have arisen within modern times since the French Revolution, basically. Uh, its causes lie in the um, you know, French Revolution, the other democratic revolutions of the 19th century, which sort of sundered church from state, which changed that relationship with the, um, the changes brought by enlightenment thinking from the 18th century, and then gets instantiated by, you know, modern states in the 19th century, and like France above all. But then also the Industrial Revolution, um, because that changes the church's relationship to the peoples of, of Western Europe. Uh, the um, church becomes primarily in places like France a rural phenomenon, whereas the cities become much more secular by the end of the 19th century. And of course, that feeds into the uh, um, the intellectual crisis that modernism represents. And uh, it basically is a, a uh, this is the term I take from a writer named Philip Trower. Uh, modernism as a movement is a revolt of academics. Uh, it's a revolt of the church learned. <laughs> and loose group, loosely associated group of people that all more or less knew each other. Um, not necessarily a self-conscious political movement in a political sense, but self-conscious a set of ideas which they wanted to use to redefine the Catholic faith, to adapt it to certain elements of modern society and modern beliefs and modern ideas. Ones which the church ultimately uh, found to be incompatible with the faith as they, they uh, profess it. That's why, as you'll see, they were condemned and the doctrines they held were condemned. It is led by theologians, mostly priests, uh, mostly priests. There are a few uh, laymen involved in all this. One in particular is important. Uh, there is in fact, and they're also all men. That's the other thing uh, that's uh, to note about this. The one exception, there is one woman who is a, a modernist who was involved in all this. Briefly, have a chance to mention this, and this movement is carried on again, mostly in academic institutions, seminaries, universities, academic journals, things of that nature. Does get into the popular press, which that also is one of the things the church reacts to. It's very sensitive to that by the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, uh, because the popular press in places like in France and other places uh, is very anti-clerical, and so. They don't take very kindly to pressure being put on them by, by theologians in this regard. So that's part of this, these set of modern institutions that seem to be arrayed against the uh, church. And then finally, this is largely a European movement. There are some people who embrace these ideas in, uh, in uh, America. In the United States, there's a few people here and there that are sympathetic to them. There's, it has its own heretical movement, Americanism 
which we won't talk about here. I have another lecture on that. But for the most part, the impact is limited to Europe. And especially with a few exceptions in Britain, it's two countries that really impacts France. Above all, France is the epicenter of this. And Italy, because it's where the papacy is at. So European movement led by priests trying to redefine both the Catholic faith and, and trying to get the church to redefine it in that way, which is what provokes this. So in order to understand, okay, what the issues are involved, I have to do some background on this. And so next part of the lecture, I'm pulling storm before the storm. There are a few key intellectual changes that take place that are really important uh, for understanding why and how this comes about. And the first that in the 19th century, there are upheavals in the, in the theological world, which originate within Protestantism outside the Catholic church. And in particular, the rise of a sort of liberal Protestant theology, which is very different, I should point out, from traditional, you know, Lutheran, Calvinist, Protestant theology, usually associated with a man named uh, uh, um, Friedrich Schleiermacher, a great theologian and philosopher, uh, who, who came up with this idea, um, well, first of all, came up with an idea of religion in philosophical terms which drew on a lot of thinking in Germany of the 18th century, particularly the thinking of Immanuel Kant. He was the major philosopher of the 18th century. And it's important to understand what Kant taught about the mind, especially because Kant taught that, uh, that human beings don't have access, intellectually speaking, to the objective world, to things in themselves. That's how he puts it. We don't have uh, knowledge. Uh, our minds don't have access to how things are in themselves. All we have access to in our minds is the order that our own uh, subjectivity imposes on the external world. And um, Kant didn't mean for this, by the way, to be a total relativistic thing. He thought that our subjectivity was more or less universal. In other words, it was the same from for all peoples, basically. Uh, that's why it's sometimes called a transcendental subjectivity, because we, what we study is not the objective worlds, what we study is our own whatever interior sense of uh, structure of our mind, whatever. Uh, he took from this a fairly, um, a fairly austere notion of how one was supposed to approach the world. Now, Schleiermacher took this idea that we don't have access to the objective world in and of itself and went in a different direction. He accepted that idea that we basically have access to our own subjectivity, but he put the emphasis, whereas, um, you know, famously, Kant puts the emphasis on doing you know, universal obligations of duty and stuff like this, and more reason and rationality. He puts the emphasis on feeling and intuition. In particular, Schleiermacher comes up with the idea that religion is mostly about feeling and intuition, an intuition of the divine, of those sorts of things. Of the, uh, I'm going over it pretty lightly here, but um, for him, what religion, especially what it teaches, like what the Bible teaches, what the church teaches in his Protestant terms, doesn't have anything to do with objective truth. <laughs> um, doctrines don't capture objective reality. What they capture are the, um, the experience, the religious experience of this you know, interior sensibility of the Christian community uh, at certain time periods. And, it's, and it changes over time. That's the thing about Schleiermacher. It's not something that's it's something that evolves over time. 
And now I should point out this out, it's not quite as subjective as it sounds. He does put some emphasis on reason and, and thinking, uh, reasoning and thinking, but his, his successors in the liberal Protestant world will take that idea of the subjectivity and run with it. And so it becomes this more subjective thing, uh, something that changes and is not stable in the same way that people have thought that traditional Protestants still think. The second upheaval is that of the higher biblical criticism which is something that also comes out of Germany. Uh, modern biblical studies begin in Germany because that's where modern philological uh, studies uh, begin, the study of uh, languages. And what's higher about them as compared to, there have been critical studies of texts before biblical texts going back to the 17th century, but, but the higher means treating them with a, a much higher degree of skepticism treating the biblical text as if they were merely the products of history of their own place and time, and not as if they were, well, written by God, or at least inspired by God. And this has the effect of undermining a lot of uh, people's faith in the authenticity, the historical authenticity of the Bible, or uh, uh, if not leading them to you know, outright unbelief, leading them to take a, you know, a sort of, um, mythic or symbolic reading of the of the new testament for example that uh, basically these are all just stories that don't have any relationship to history or the real world they're just symbols for man's religious experience this is the kind of thing that the higher biblical criticism challenges traditional belief in the the bible's inerrancy and stuff like this in the 19th century and finally this comes at a time when catholic theology itself is in upheaval it's in total disarray not total but in disarray for a variety of reasons. One is that there had been a decline to a certain degree in the standards of, of Catholic seminary and university life before the French Revolution. Decay from uh, the, the probably the later scholastic period and some of the earlier periods. But even more so after the French Revolution and the revolutions of the 19th century, because the French, later on the Italians, will, you know, the French Revolution just it, it literally closes down these schools. Um, the French government, later on the Italian government, will expropriate church property, church buildings. <laughs> uh, literally the physical aspects of these things will be in disarray, these Catholic schools. And so the state of uh, education um, intellectually for priests is not very good in the middle of the 19th century. John Henry Newman, we'll talk about in a second, is, um, you know, the convert from Anglicanism, St. John Henry Newman now, uh, comes into the church in the 1840s and goes to Rome to study theology there. And when he's there, he asks them what they, do they study St. Thomas Aquinas? And he gets the response, yeah, nobody teaches St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome. Uh, you wouldn't think, right? You, you think of the church, you think of scholasticism, but that's not actually the case. Uh, Thomas had been displaced actually a long time ago. It's only, as you'll see, as a response to all this, that Thomas will take his place again in Catholic uh, in Catholic formation of, the, of priests. And so all these all these changes are happening at a time when the church is not in a position really to deal with it very well, is the main point you should take away from that. And in addition to these upheavals in theology, you also at the same time, the university system uh, changing rapidly and greatly. Uh, assuming its modern form, more or less the form it still takes today in most places. Because prior to the 19th century, I mean, I'm summing up in a grossly inadequate way, you know, is basically the old sort of humanist model of the university, uh, where you're basically reading old texts, you're mostly passing on old wisdom, 
Yeah, the faculties, you know, haven't changed that much from the Middle Ages. Uh, they have to a certain degree, but they are mostly a sort of holistic education in the great texts of theology, civilization, that sort of thing. I'm, I'm dumbing this down horribly. What happens to change all this is, again, this all comes from Germany. <laughs> Everything bad in the modern world comes from Germany and France. Uh, I'm only slightly exaggerating, by the way. Um, reforms are undertaken, actually Germany, in Prussia in the early part of the 19th century, before the, there's a, a, a Germany as a country, Prussia, Kingdom of Prussia, where educational reformers, partly in response to political events, in 1806, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte uh, uh, defeats a Prussian army and overruns Berlin. And this causes painful reaction in Prussia. And one of the things they do is they want to set up a university system on a different basis. And reformers like Wilhelm von Humboldt, he's the major figure, want to put the university on a different footing and to have it, and they, uh, and they have a very different ideal of what knowledge is supposed to be than had been previously the case. This is sometimes called the Wissenschaft idea. Wissenschaft just means something like uh, wisdom or science, more like science actually. And what their ideal was, instead of a sort of holistic wisdom, like you're just handing on old books and reading them and stuff like this and commenting on them, those sorts of things, their ideal was to sort of treat all the branches of knowledge as if they were rigorous sciences. They use this term, rigorous science, talk about this. That's where you examine everything with a fine tooth comb, like you would, like you would measure things in, this is their kind of thinking about it at this point, in terms of the natural sciences. That's kind of the model for all this, an empirical, inductive, highly precise examination of whatever you're studying. And then if you, and you treat things that had not been treated like that before, um, you know, music or anything can be treated this way, not just the actual, we say the hard sciences today, the natural sciences, but everything can be treated as if it's a science. And if you treat all these subjects, all the subjects, what we think of as, as the arts and the sciences today, as, as sciences, that will sort of add up to a greater source of wisdom. Literally, they, I, one of these were, uh, reformers uh, uh, was involved in the uh, uh, philological study in the early 1800s, I think, in Germany, refers to as if you do all this, if you treat everything in that way, it will um, it will add up to this sacred wisdom. It'll kind of replace the older model of knowledge. When we say holistic wisdom, the the what united knowledge in the, say the Middle Ages uh, was, of course, theology. Um, theology was the queen of the sciences because it was going to be a science in the Middle Ages. Uh, they're replacing that with this sort of inductive empirical model, which is supposed to bring all the um, all the uh, disciplines together this way. Why am I mentioning this? The shift is profound, because on the one hand, that holistic wisdom tended to emphasize passing on a body of knowledge as a whole, right? What the Wissenschaft ideal basically means is it's going to emphasize what we call research, original research. That's still the thing today. You get your PhD like I did. I got it in history, you have to do an original piece of research. You go off and do research and you examine something critically with a fine tooth comb uh, to produce new knowledge. The idea is to produce novel understandings of what went before you, not to pass on what you received, which is a much more conservative. It's also a much more, it's much, it, it, the difference is profound because now you're not trying to get the whole picture. You're trying to examine things with a fine tooth comb the way you do in the natural sciences, right? You know, very precise, very sharp, very much 
uh, limited to the sort of particular thing you're studying. And the idea was you do this research, then you go teach this stuff to your kids in your classrooms. It was sort of a, the ideal was a balance between teaching and research. By the end of the 19th century, this ideal is gone. And, and research to this day becomes the primary thing you're supposed to do as a, an academic in a university system. In other words, to produce new things. I say this because this will have a profound effect on theology eventually, because of course, as a theologian, Catholic theologian especially, your, your primary goal is not to produce new knowledge <laughs> or new understanding, it's to hand on faithfully the teaching of the church. So those things are gonna come, come in conflict. This is all happening at the same time, by the way, that education at a lower level in the later part of the 19th century is also being secularized, meaning the state is taking over uh, increasingly primary and secondary education, 1870s and 80s in France, same period in Britain, uh, Germany as well. They are, and they're doing this many places in France, especially Italy, with governments that are anti-clerical. They want to take, because primary and secondary education have been the, the preserve of the church for millennia, practically speaking. And they they want to get the church, they want to wrest control of that. They want, they want, they want to wrest control of the church's influence and authority and power, and that's part of it. Uh, and so all this is going on at the same time. And one last thing to note about this is that Universities have always had a sort of corporate mentality, a corporate sense of identity, like we're part of this you know, body of people who are set apart as people who are, are knowledgeable, we, ha we have learning and all this stuff that exists in the Middle Ages. But something changes with this modern ideal of university. And um, I say this because you, if you're ever, if you have to go through it to recognize this, but modern modern academics uh, have a real serious sense of their autonomy, independence, and authority as precisely as, well, uh, you know, this is what's connected with scientific study, right? But uh, as experts, as scientific experts, they are scientific experts in their field. Why do I mention this? Because this means this makes them a rival in some ways to the church. This is what's partly at stake here in this debate is that Certainly these, these theologians will say, look, we have scientific knowledge of the text and we know for a fact the church's traditional teaching can't be true now on the basis of our scientific study of the text. In other words, there's gonna be a clash of authorities here on the basis of this new um, understanding of knowledge. And I mention this because it's meant in some ways, the secular university is meant as a replacement in some ways for religious authority. The um, German philosopher, uh, George uh, Friedrich Hegel once said that our university, or this early or 1820s, our universities are our churches. And the sort of commitment that the modern academy demands from its adherents is kind of, it's, it's kind of almost, you know, religious in its intensity. Uh, they definitely see themselves as a people apart, almost in the same way that the hierarchy in the church, the Catholic church does. So all these things set up for, for conflict. And then finally, okay, storm before the storm, what are some of the things the church, what do they do to respond to all this? Well, the most immediate responses in the 18, early first part of the 19th century are to try to adapt in some ways to um, the modern world. That's what we get a sort of, you call it liberal Catholicism, Catholic liberalism, whatever you want to call it. This mostly involved people like, uh, there's a man named Lemonet, who was a priest who advocated uh, embracing separation of church and state. Uh, he thought getting the church out of its 
cozy arrangement with the government help it. The church didn't see, see it the same way, condemned his writings. Um, there are also other thinkers. Uh, there's a, a school of theologians at the University of Tübingen in Germany who uh, take uh, historical studies, produces a, a series of church historians, Catholic historians, who uh, try to give a, a, a historical understanding of the church's teaching, which sort of moves in a quasi-liberal direction. Uh, then there are people like John Henry Newman, of course, who's an Anglican, becomes a Catholic, who takes a very different, you know, he comes from an English setting, he's influenced by English philosophy, uh, empiricism, who takes a, his, his orientation toward religious belief is more, you know, it's a little more subjective, it's a little more experiential. In fact, in some ways, we'll see, he gets kind of uh, not fairly lumped in with modernism, actually, to a certain degree. But you have these tentative attempts, in some regards, to adapt to changing circumstances. Doesn't go poor well, excuse me. At the same time, you also have uh, attempts to go within the church and its history and its resources uh, and revive uh, uh, from within its intellectual life. In particular, starting in the 1840s, uh, in, uh, begins locally in certain places in Italy, some Catholic theologians begin going back to the text of, of St. Thomas and trying to build upon his insights to answer some of the critiques of modern thought and modern society. And this begins what's so, so called Neo-Thomas revival, which will come into, come into its own 18, in 1878 when one of these people who'd begun as a bishop to teach, have uh, Thomas taught in his seminaries, uh, one of these people becomes Pope, Pope Leo XIII who issues an encyclical, Eterni Patris, in 1879, which enjoins the teaching of St. Thomas's texts, not commentators from a later era or people who've based their philosophy on him late from a later era. They'd taught that since, you know, in the last couple hundred years, but going back to the original sources and teaching his texts as the basis for, you know, for philosophical training in seminaries and in Catholic schools and universities. That's in 1879. Um, it won't have a big effect until, and this is an important note, it won't really reach seminaries in a big way until the early part of the 20th century. I mention that because most of the people we associate with modernism um, go through their seminary, day, seminary days before this, this encyclical has really taken its effect. And that's important because, again, the educational aspect of seminary life wasn't that great, especially in France, before that became, uh, before this revival took off. At the same time, you do have responses in France. The biggest one is in the 1870s, when, actually 1875, you have a series of Catholic universities founded. I say they're Catholic universities. They quickly have to drop that name because the uh, anti an anti-clerical government gets into power there in the Third Republic in France and strips them of that title. They can't call themselves, to this day, actually, um, they have Catholic institutes and they still have Maybe they have Catholic universities now, but they're not state-supported. That's the thing. They, they, they're no more state-supported Catholic universities. They have to call them institutes. And in particular, the Catholic Institute of Paris would be the most prestigious one, and we'll come back to it in a moment. And then finally, one of the things to note about all this, I have to mention them, single them out by name, is the influence of Newman. It's the case that in the latter part of the 19th century, a lot of European thinkers will begin to take up his thought. Uh, after a period in which he's been under suspicion, like a lot of people in Rome, especially well into the 20th century, are kind of leery of him because he's not a, he's not a scholastic, he's not a Thomist. He his philosophy comes from this you know British empiricism. It sounds weird to them, 
and he does begin he is he he touches more on human subjectivity than they do it's not a subjective philosophy per se that newman has doesn't really have a philosophy in a worked out way but his work tends to to sound like that to some of these roman ears which are much more suspicious of that uh and i say this because virtually every figure i'm going to talk about who comes to be known as a modernist uh, who either gets condemned or doesn't is influenced by uh newman they take his ideas and run with them in ways I don't think he would have, uh, I don't think he would have agreed with. I'm not sure really are really good representations of his thought, but this is one of the reasons why um, he sometimes gets, uh, at the time was lumped in with them to a certain degree, which is not really true. Uh, that's why he's a saint now, and they're not. <laughs> so now we come to the thing itself. Confrontations, 1893 to 1906. What and who is this modernism thing? Well, we have to begin in France. Because this, uh, this begins in France. And this is, in fact, as St. Pius X will call it, uh, he calls modernism the French disease. Uh, and it's it, it kind of goes back to, in some ways, the situation of the church in France. Because and I think this happens because this is, you know, in the 1870s and 1880s, this is the first generation of Catholic scholars who really has to be exposed to all these changes in theology and in academic life for the first time full bore. And it probably was gonna have a negative impact on some of them, just because so many of these priests, almost the vast majority of them in the late 19th century in France, come from rural areas. Uh, and so they go to, you know, they'll go to Paris to go to a seminary or something like this, or go to the Catholic Institute. And I don't think they have any resources to resist the very powerful ideas that are being thrown at them. And this is the case with a couple of people we're gonna talk about here. Um, the guy who's in some ways the, the, the first great scholar produced in this period uh, when they're trying to deal with all this is Louis, Father Louis de Chêne. He's a Catholic priest of Brittany, uh, or at least in the Breton coast uh, in France. Again, from a peasant background, from a rural background. And uh, he um, um, uh, um, studies uh, one of the uh, institutes in Paris. And um, discovers his vocation as a church historian, he's an ecclesiastical historian. And he makes a name for himself as a scholar with a, with a, uh, a study and then a, an addition um, with commentary of the Liber Pontificalis. The Liber Pontificalis is this, it's called the Book of the Popes, it goes back to the you know, early, first millennium basically. But since the first millennium, it had, had, accru had accrued to it a lot of legendary trappings around it. And so what he did was, in good critical scholarly fashion, go through this text, cross out the things that were legendary, cross out the things that were dubious, to get back to the to the actual text as far as they could tell and make it usable for scholars. And it impressed. It won him plaudits with the Secular Academy, especially in Germany, which is the epicenter of all this, for its precision in things like yeah, philology, his uh, grasp of languages, paleography, his grasp of the text involved. He went all over Europe. Uh, getting the earliest manuscripts together and looking at all this stuff. On the other hand, uh, by the time he became a scholar, uh, Duchenne had acquired a pretty skeptical attitude toward certain parts of church history. He was skeptical about uh, the, uh, the doctrinal teachings of the church prior to the Nicene period, because there's not a lot of evidence for it, <laughs> but also especially um, for anything that might smack of the legendary or the overly pious. He was a pretty skeptical guy for a priest. What got him in trouble is he wrote an article in the early 1880s 
questioning the apostolic foundations of one of the um, bishoprics, the sees in France. The bishop of that see did not take kindly to it. It was almost certainly, by the way, a pious legend. And uh, this got him into trouble. And so he was forced to resign his chair in history at the Institut Catholique in 1885. To give you an idea of how highly he was regarded, he was immediately hired by a secular university to teach, uh, uh, to teach letters there. The École Supérieure des Lettres uh, gave him a, a position, very prestigious. Uh, and, and people, by the way, he was skeptical, I'll get to this in a moment, he really is more than skeptical in some ways. Um, a lot of his colleagues were envious. He was a better scholar. Um, and he's uh, scooped up there um, um, where he works until 1895. Then he uh, gets a position teaching at the French School of Archaeology in Rome, where he remains for the rest of his life. And in fact, Duchesne will be one of the mentors of, maybe we'll talk about next, Alfred Lavoisi, but many others in that period. And um, influenced a lot of them with his skepticism uh, toward the church, its history, and in, in more private ways, its doctrines and teachings. Uh, someone will have uh, occasion to mention in a moment, a man named Marcel Hébert, who was a philosopher, once claimed that Duchesne had given him reasons not to believe in the resurrection, uh, something Duchesne later denied. Uh, and in fact, we have some very weird, um, odd comments from him in his private letters. He actually had, uh, upon his death, he had his um, executive of his estate burn a lot of his writings. Uh, he, in private, he, one of the differences maybe between him and Loisy is he wasn't as brave. Uh, he never went uh, quite as uh, open about mocking church teaching or, or challenging as Loisy did, but he was a pretty skeptical guy. And um, just the one man had a lot of influence. The guy who probably had the most influence, although they, they fell out after a while, partly over uh, Duchenne's sort of lack of interest in following Loisy where he was going, is Alfred de Wazy. Uh, was born in 1857, dies in 1940, long-lived man, like, uh, the, like uh, Duchesne, uh, came from a rural area in France, en Vrière, in Champagne, uh, rural family. He, uh, like a lot of people I'm going to talk about here, he's in poor health for most of his life, lives a long time, but he has, you know, he's sickly as a child, uh, he isn't, um, you know, he's bright, he's precocious, but he's not good at sports. You know, kids make fun of him. He's mocked for his physical weakness, that sort of thing. You know, shy, reserved, but very intellectual, very self-confident, uh, put it that way, in his intelligence. Again, he's a big fish in a small pond. And um, eventually he's tapped for by the village priest or someone who can go study at the seminary. He eventually decides he has some sort of experience in 1873, convinces him he has a vocation to be a priest. Uh, nonetheless, when he goes off to seminary and starts to be exposed to, again, critical thinking uh, about things like the Trinity, the, uh, you know, uh, the divinity of Christ, he admits to having doubts. Uh, he writes somewhere that he basically says, well, I'd always felt these things to be true, but now I had to think about them when I was in a crisis. And so even when he begins studying in, in, um, in the seminary, as early as his early seminary studies in the 1870s, he's already having doubts. And in fact, he uh, definitely doubts the truths of scholasticism that are being taught him in the seminary, which again, we're not talking about, when I say scholasticism, that's thinking, that system of thinking we tend to associate with uh, the church or the later Middle Ages. This is not the bright, you know, light of scholasticism of the high Middle Ages. It's a really debased, fairly dull um, set of manuals they give students. And almost, it was almost universally disliked. 
And so someone who was as sensitive and intelligent as him, he would, again, it, it sort of poisoned him against this. But he did actually like languages. He began studying Hebrew. He found uh, an aptitude for languages, and this led him to study the Bible. And in fact, his first contact with biblical criticism made him question the historical reliability of the Gospels, which he later admitted in his memoirs. Such that by the time he goes through seminary, by the time he goes through his, it takes you know, a long time, uh, time of his ordination in 1890, he clearly believed, um, he clearly believed that what the church taught about the Bible was wrong. And he later admitted that he had never had any intention of adhering to this teaching <laughs> uh, when he took the oath, uh, when he took the oath, you have to swear an oath when you become a priest, basically where you, you, you basically uh, swear to uphold the church's teaching as it always be, has always been held by the majority of the church fathers and all this stuff. He basically admits that he had no intention of doing this and swore to it anyway. Uh, Wazi was a hardworking, prolific scholar. Uh, published nearly 60 books and 300 articles in his lifetime. But in some ways, I, again, I find him to be a dishonest person uh, in a lot of respects. Even though he's having doubts, he gets himself um, uh, ordained. And early on, by the early 1890s, he admitted he already had aims to influence the church and alter its teachings. He, uh, he dreamed of the day where he quotes, this is a quote of his, I shall have pupils in every corner of France and my ideas will be more easily accepted. Meaning he's hoping to get his ideas to replace the churches without ever, of course, being very honest about this. Uh, and he sometimes praised for his courage, and he did have it, by the way. But I, 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 I think he has from an early period a, a sense of, um, to me, a lack of honesty that I find very, very disconcerting. And he is at the center of all this, as you'll see. He does... Um, uh, after his ordination, gets a position at the Catholic, uh, the Catholic Institute, which um, eventually, because of some of his views on the Bible and, and uh, biblical teaching, uh, he'll have to resign from 1893, which makes him very bitter against the church hierarchy. So this is something going forward that seems to influence him. Again, sensitive guy, intelligent. Sometimes when you're more intelligent than your employers, <laughs> which he almost certainly was, this tends to give you a sense of contempt towards your superiors. He, he got this early on uh, in his, uh, his life, unfortunately. At the same time, there are philosophical currents uh, in France, which are similar to what's going on elsewhere, but influential, um, particularly three guys worth mentioning. Um, one is Maurice Blondel, uh, he is a uh, philosopher who writes a book uh, which actually impresses the French Academy, the Secular Academy, in 1893 called L'Action, Action. And what this is about basically is this is his idea that um, within the human subject, uh, it's basically a subjective philosophy, uh, within, the, within the human subject lies a vital energy or, or, or principle, which is the fount of all his activity what he calls a universal determinism, quote unquote, of energy and will. And the thinking goes um, uh, that human nature contains this drive, can't be fulfilled by anything within human nature, but only by a supernatural force beyond it. Hence, in Blondel's uh, um, argument, the need for something supernatural, and that something supernatural is Christianity. Blondel was a very, very pious man, uh, very devout, who was uh, opposed to the sort of skeptical rationalist philosophies, secular philosophy of the day. And uh, he wanted to oppose to this, this idea of a sort of subjective need 
for the supernatural, which he thought would be, uh, he thought his philosophy would be more convincing to modern people than the apologetic stance the church took, which was to appeal to scholasticism, uh, which by contrast tried to show that Christianity was reasonable by emphasizing its, its, uh, its compatibility with human nature uh, and uh, by the compatibility of, of the supernatural with human nature rather than its sort of necessity, I guess, internal necessity. Uh, it was mainly uh, directed at, like I said, secular positive uh, philosophy. It was attacked by scholastics because it was, to be fair, a fairly subjective philosophy. It seemed sketchy to them. Uh, and early on, he was kind of lumped together with some of the other modernists, although he really wasn't uh, radical in the way they were. Another one of these um, thinkers, uh, philosophical currents surrounding the modernist controversy is that of Edward de Waugh, who was a philosopher, layman, and a follower of Henri Bergson, probably the most um, influential philosopher in France in the first part of the 20th century. Uh, Bergson was someone who stressed what he called a notion of, of, of elan vital, or vital energy, as, as the basis for, again, truth and all those other sorts of things. The Wa takes this and runs with it in theological terms, saying that the basis for religious faith is this sort of vital, subjective energy of spontaneous will and all this other stuff. Uh, much more un much more unorthodox than Blondell was. Uh, and to prove this, he penned an article in 1905 called What is Dogma? Basically saying that dogma could only ever capture uh, uh, reality in relative terms. Why? Because reality for us is, is, a, is a flow of time. It's ever changing. And therefore our, the church's doctrines have to adapt over time. Got him in hot water with authorities, although he uh, escaped condemnation altogether, still caused a bit of a stir. Then finally, there's Marcel Hébert, who I've previously mentioned, and he was a priest and a philosopher, um, and he was a Kantian. He was a follower of Monument Kant, who in 1899 published a book in which he denied the existence of a personal God, but still remained in the Catholic Church in order to influence it, almost certainly, by the way, on the advice of someone, of people like Duchesne. Uh, not surprisingly, this didn't last very long. He actually left the priesthood. Uh, four years later in 1903, his books were already uh, condemned by then, uh, but he had not been excommunicated or anything like that. But these are the types of currents that are surrounding uh, what are going to be discussions mostly about history, doctrine, the history of doctrine and the Bible, but these philosophical currents are really influencing a lot of things, even though, as we'll see, people like Wazi want to say they're just scientists, and that's not really what they want to do. Um, we'll see where that goes in a second, but that's the scene in France where the epicenter of this is. This, uh, this is just a picture. You see what he looks like, uh, Alfred Wazi. From his later years, the impressive goatee. Um, I think he actually may still have a collar on. He may still be in his priestly days, I don't know, um, before he was excommunicated. That is Wazi. Now, this, I say this movement, if you can call it this, because by the time you get to early 1890s, most of these people in France know each other. And again, not a lot of personal ties. I mean, you have personal ties between uh, Duchesne and, and uh, Loisie and Hébert and some of those people. What turns this into a, 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 a larger movement basically is one person. And that man is uh, Friedrich von Hugel, the Baron von Hugel who was an Austrian nobleman, uh, was, uh, moved to England, his family did when he was nine or 10 years old and, and remained there. Uh, so that's where he was raised. And his connections to the continent, uh, both as an ar aristocrat, as someone who was from Austria, especially the German speaking world, gave this group of people who loosely connected with each other 
uh, a breadth they wouldn't have had access to. Also gave them access to the Vatican because he knew enough aristocrats in Italy to actually get audiences with the Pope occasionally. Uh, and both whose status and leisure allowed him to write and to bring together most of the personalities involved in this movement, at least by letter, if not by actual meeting. And most of them do meet. He meets Loisy, and there's meetings between him and, uh, and Blondel and people like that. Uh, but he is also someone who, again, this is another thing I mentioned the Loisie, uh, kind of a, he has some health problems when he's younger. Von Hugel has some health problems when he's younger. Von Hugel's also a sensitive type, although he's a little different. He is definitely not the sort of rigorous scientific scholar that Loisie sees himself as. He is much more of a, a I think, a, a, a humanist in some ways. Uh, he loves poetry, textual stuff. He fancies himself a mystic. Uh, von Hugel is like like Blondel, very pious. Uh, he spends many days, he spends hours a day in front of the Blessed Sacrament. He prays his rosary every day. Uh, and yet, unlike Blondel, he does not toy with the, the church's dogma. Uh, Baron von Hugel, uh, uh, at some points in his life, will call into question articles of the creed while still doing, while still praying his rosary every day and going from the Blessed Sacrament without ever really seeing a contradiction between these two things. Uh, but being a layman, as you'll see, he escapes any condemnation. He's kind of on the edge of it anyway. He's not nearly as radical as some of his friends, but he embraces them. He particularly embraces a, uh, a friend in England, uh, a man who is actually Irish, a man named George Tyrrell. George Tyrrell was uh, from Dublin, uh, from a, a Protestant family in Dublin, who's uh, whose uh, father dies when he's young, so his mother is forced to sort of drag the family all over the place, try to find work, provide for her kids. And he kind of has a sort of uh, rebellious streak in him. When he's 12, about 12 years old, he starts dabbling in um, Anglo-Catholicism, if you know what this is, high church Anglicanism, as a sort of rebellion against his very dour sort of, you know, um, uh, Irish Protestant upbringing, and eventually from there uh, he gets into Catholicism, and there's more than a little bit of adolescent rebellion involved in all this, and in fact by the time he's 14, 15 years old he begins to conceive the idea of becoming a Jesuit priest, and again this is almost a perfect you know rejection of his class, his religion, all this other stuff, and despite by the fact by, despite the fact recording, by the way, that he has doubts about the existence of God between the ages of 14 and 18, eventually he decides by the time he's 18 years old, he goes to London, shows up at the Jesuit headquarters and demands to be let in. And they uh, faithfully do. Um, they allow him into their, into their, um, into their, um, and to try it out for a couple of years. He goes on a two-year sort of trial run. He's sent to Malta on a couple of other colleges, but he doesn't really take to. And yet, um, after this two-year apprenticeship, when he comes back, his superiors um, basically say that he's, you know, they recommend he leave. <laughs> they think he's not fit for the society, which is, in retrospect, rather obvious he was not fit for the society or the priesthood. And yet he somehow convinced them to let him take his vows, which he does, and enters the novitiate. Uh, and then um, 10 years later, in 1891, he is ordained a priest after the Wazee. Like Wazi, he is also hardworking, if not the scholar he was. Um, but again, he has this uh, independent streak in him. As soon as he gets into the Jesuits, um, he decides he doesn't like the philosophy that's taught uh, in their seminaries, which is not Thomism. 
It is, um, it's uh, called uh, Suarez. It's the philosophy of uh, Francisco Suarez, who was a Jesuit priest of the uh, 17th century. And he sees this as a, as a debased form of Thomas. So he actually tries to go learn Thomas Aquinas on his own, reads through some of his texts, which is probably the worst thing he can do. You really do need somebody to teach you St. Thomas. It's not an easy thing to master by yourself. But he does this again in order to sort of like, ah, I'm, you know, break out of my own. I'm a, it's, I guess, almost a sort of minor rebellion against his Jesuit superiors. Um, and eventually, though, uh, in the course of the 1890s, being in London, he will come to the attention of von Hugel. Uh, both of these men, by the way, Tyrrell and von Hugel, saw themselves as sort of, well, Tyrrell did this. He did spiritual direction to people and enjoyed it. Being a spiritual mentor and guide meant something to Tyrrell. Uh, von Hugel did this in an, in an unofficial capacity, even as a layman. Uh, but when they came together, they found like minds. And it was von Hugel who introduced him to writers like Waddell, but also John Henry Newman, and then also uh, Alfred Loisie. And another influence, he begins to reject the standard scholasticism of the Neotones revival. And by the end of the 1890s, he began to sort of um, poke around the holes of orthodoxy. Uh, not in the same way that uh, Lawazi, but he's, again, not a scholar at all, but he's getting much more of a sort of, you know, he sees himself as a spiritual director or something. Publishes an article in 1899 um, called A Perverted Devotion, in which basically he's, he doesn't actually come out and say it's false, but he basically says that the doctrine of hell, of eternal you know, punishment, should, should, shouldn't be mentioned to modern people. It's totally inappropriate, it's all sorts of other stuff. He comes very close to saying it isn't. It isn't um, uh, true, basically. It doesn't do that. Uh, and his Jesuit superiors come down pretty hard on him. And from that time forward, he begins doing something Lawazi's already done already, which is to start writing articles under a pseudonym, in which he becomes more and more adventurous in terms of embracing, again, critical scholarship mm -hmm. and taking a critical line towards um, um, Catholic doctrine and Catholic teaching. Uh, and in fact, this relationship, we'll, we'll see, will be part of the, the blow up of modernism in the middle of the 20th century. At the same time, from an earlier period um, uh, in Italy, you're beginning to have, and this is something I need to explain here, you begin to have uh, political activism uh, becoming important in Italy. And this needs some explaining because after the uh, uh, papal states are, are gobbled up by the Italian kingdom of Italy in 1870, and uh, the papacy is trapped in the Vatican in Rome, they forbid Italian citizens from voting in Italian elections. Again, the reason they do this is because in their minds, they've stolen their property. They've, and they actually have, they've stolen the church's property. It's paper, it's, it's states, it's, it's uh, but not just that, it's schools. It's, uh, they've you know, secularized religious orders and taken their property. They think that this is theft. And so they're, they're, they basically forbid Catholics, pious Catholics on pain on, on, uh, to do this. Uh, and yet you begin to have activism, political activism, uh, amongst um, younger priests in Italy in the 1890s um, begin to arise. In particular, you have people like Ernesto um, uh, Buenanuti uh, in, uh, in, um, and, uh, yeah, an Italian priest in the 1890s, begin to found you know, journals for the study of this stuff and uh, trying to influence uh, democratic society. Again, at this point, I should mention it's fairly orthodox in the late 1890s. It hasn't gone over to sort of modern modernist ideas, but there's a streak of activism uh, lying within uh, to a certain degree. 
uh, in fact, it doesn't have a lot to do uh, in the beginning. It becomes that way because um, von Hugel and others will uh, sort of spread and get ideas and essays from people like Wazee and, and Tyrrell translated into Italy. Uh, when you get to the early part of the 20th century, they'll have that effect. A lot of these priests begin to embrace those ideas, partly because they want to adapt to the bigger concern in Italy is adapting to changing circumstances, social circumstances. Again, workers' movements, stuff like this. Um, this is a big concern in France as well, but it's one of the real divides they have trying to reach the working classes in the cities. And they don't have a lot of um, emphasis, uh, don't have a lot of um, uh, success on doing. So you have that uh, in the background, which will come out later. Then finally, on the very edges of this, you'll have something called Reform Catholicism in Germany, which basically means Reform Catholicism. And this is much different from what goes on in um, the rest of Europe. The only reason to mention is because you do have two people get excommunicated from Germany for their efforts. And um, they, in fact, um, the movement there is spearheaded by um, almost, you could say, more liberal Catholics. Uh, the distinction is they're more liberal in the sense they, they do want to adapt to modern times, but they also just want to more open themselves up to the wider society. And to explain this, if you don't know, uh, following the, the, the first Vatican Council in 1870, when the, the, the Pope's uh, infallibility was declared, this caused a serious uh, crisis in Germany because the German government, you know, newly created, felt this made, you know, made it impossible for Catholics to be loyal subjects of the state because they acknowledged the Pope's authority. And so they began a, a, a several year campaign of trying to shut down Catholic schools, shut down Catholic youth organizations. Um, shut down Catholic parties, you had Catholic political parties in Germany. Uh, eventually they, 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 they relented, but it left the Catholic community in Germany really scarred by the experience. And so for the next several decades, they just sort of rallied the troops and withdrew into their own little world. And the, um, uh, 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 this movement, the Reform Catholicism, was just about trying to open things up. There wasn't as, uh, there wasn't the same motivations behind it. Uh, more socially at this point, there'll be <laughs> there'll be later on certain modernist ideas than in the Germany, but at that point it wasn't quite the virulence that it was in other places. So what if you have all these people writing this stuff? This doesn't sound that uh, that you know that threatening. Maybe it's just academics. Well, you have to understand these are academics who are teaching the future of the church in terms of priests and theologians. And in fact, I mentioned before, Lawazi especially had aims to um, to to influence the um, to the next generation. And he admitted later that as early as uh, 1893, I'm going to read this whole passage because it's very incredible. He says, as early as 1893, quote, I continue to think that the Bible being a book written by human beings did not escape the conditions of every human book and could not be in accord with the truth of any other epoch, even in matters of faith and morals except the epic of its own composition. It defied the evidence, I'm filling in some things here, to pretend the doctrinal teaching of scripture was the same as that of the church, unquote. Uh, he'd come to have some really radical opinions by the early 20th century. And he had been sort of, he'd, he published by this time, he published a series of articles under pseudonyms, uh, late 1890s called, uh, under the name Furman, for mean or whatever in French, but uh, which developed this idea of, as you kind of from that quotation, a development of a development of doctrine, an idea that went way beyond anything Newman had ever uh, ever uh, considered orthodox. 
that not just does it you know develop in the sense of expand or grow from its original state while retaining its character, it just purely changes over time uh, in, in his mind and adapts itself to the changing conditions of society. Um, and so how does he get himself, how does this come about and how does he expose himself and why? Well, one of the things that's happening in the early part of the 20th, uh, 20th century is that the, um, the French government has, is um, a, a very anti-clerical French government comes to power in the early part of the 20th century, which is putting more and more pressure on the church because again, this is background, which you need to understand this. The relationship between the French state and the church is governed by the 1801 Concordat the church had signed with Napoleon Bonaparte, which granted a certain status in the state. Its ministers are paid by the state, um, but it also allowed the state to appoint bishops, which again, the Pope had to sign off on, but they could impose their will and get their way. Why am I mentioning all this? This is 1902. The Wazi uh, was approached by a member of this anti-clerical government wanting to uh, select him to be a bishop. Why? Because the, the government was run by an, an anti-clerical prime minister who had been a seminarian and hated the church and they wanted to undermine it. And so they wanted to force someone they knew they'd hate on, on the episcopacy. And in fact, Loisy started changing his lectures, making them, because he was lecturing, lecturing to students, um, uh, where he was at. And even though he had bad relationship with the local bishop, he, was, he made his, his, uh, his uh, lectures more orthodox, he was trying to play nice. We get the, get that position, get that authority, and apparently he wanted to impress, as far as I can tell, his authorities by writing a book, which would attack a major Protestant thinker. And in fact, he actually thought uh, he wrote to someone, uh, someone who actually said, I, "I think they will be satisfied by this." And the result of this was a book called *L'Evangile et l'Église*, the Church, uh, excuse me, the Gospel and the Church, in 1902, that same year. And it attacked the German theologian, Alfred von Harnack. Alfred von Harnack was the, the godfather, the Pope of liberal Protestant theology in Germany, who had written a book called The Essence of Christianity, uh, which basically argued that uh, the core of, of uh, Christianity was a sort of Jewish moralism taught by Jesus, basically a moral message. All the sort of supernatural stuff was, were later accretions from you know, uh, Roman Empire, from Hellenistic um, Greek thought and stuff like this. If you shook that all the way, you get to the historical essence. Now, at this point, Louise uh, Wazi, being a scholar, uh, with his ideas of of uh, of how uh, 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 history works, again, who thought that you know no epic could be you know the same as the other in terms of its truth, in the book maintained that Christianity underwent a historical evolution that had not been foreseen. By its by the early Christians, or by and this is what gets him in trouble, or by Jesus himself. Jesus had not foreseen the emergence of the church in Loisy's mind. He argues that instead, he um, he proclaimed the kingdom of God as a sort of eschatological event. He was proclaiming the end of times, basically, and he had no inkling there be there be any history after that. Other words. Jesus wasn't omnipotent and didn't know what was going to happen afterwards. It's in practice a denial of his divinity. Why he thought this would get past people, I don't know. Yeah, uh, um, but he wrote a book. Uh, he wrote several books trying to sort of um, 
um, a couple other books the same year, basically next next year or so. Um, he wrote a book on the fourth on the on the called the fourth gospel, the Gospel of John, which he maintained that the Apostle John was not the author of the of of the Gospel of John, and that everything in it was purely symbolic. <laughs> it had no historical relevance whatsoever. And then finally, in 1903, he publishes a book called uh, About a Little Book, or sometimes called The Little Red Book, which was a uh, defense of the ideas he published in these two previous ones, which basically, uh, I, well, another one, um, another book called Simple Reflections on the Decree of the Holy Office, uh, which was an expression of, of insolence uh, defying magisterium. His books were placed on the index in 1904, all those three of those books I just mentioned. And he did, much to his later shame, he was eventually convinced to submit and retract his ideas. He didn't actually really retract anything, but he gave a formal submission, which would not save him in the end. And one of the things that's happening in all this, and I just mentioned the background again about what's happening in France, um, that, that next year, um, the French anti-clerical government passes a law of separation. If you don't know what this is, this is the final split. Uh, this is the beginnings of what's called laicism in France, where there's a total separation of church from state, and not just from state, but from public life altogether. Church gets no funding, it's totally cut off from, uh, uh, from the state, it loses its position. The church, Pius X, who's a pope at the time, protests this. But it seems like, again, they're not really sure what's going to happen, the churches in France or the pope. Because to give you some background of this, a few years before this, the, uh, the French government has already expelled every single religious order in the country. So there's something, they may, just, they, may just, they may just take over the church's property and just kick them all out, I don't know. So it's a very crazy time at that moment. The same time, 1905, 1906, I mentioned some of these other modernist writings get into Italy, in particular the writings of Tyrrell. One of, which, uh, one of which finds itself translated into Italian uh, when his uh, superiors ask him to repudiate the doctrines in it, which again, he's becoming critical of, uh, of church teaching and the need to adapt it. Uh, he refuses and therefore he's expelled uh, by, the, uh, by, the, by the Jesuits. Same year, Pius X, who's now the Pope at the time, issues a condemnation of one of these uh, Italian um, political groups uh, that are um, uh, becoming prominent in Italy. This one's actually very prominent. It's the Lega Democratica Nazionale, funded by Father Romolo Murray, who uh, at that point um, um, uh, has this big political organization, which is now officially kind of at odds with the Vatican. It's taken on some of those ideas about uh, from the modernists about adapting to modern society. Um, in fact, uh, in the next year, you're going to actually have a manifesto published by Ernesto um, um, which will openly embrace modernist ideas. So they've gotten into Italy by this point. And this is really what brings this to the attention of, of the, the paper, brings it to attention, but probably is the thing that uh, sets it off because now it seems to be popping up everywhere. It seems like a movement. And so the, this is where um, the church begins to act. And so you have condemnations. And it's the title of the last part of the lecture. 1907, um, the Pius X issues uh, an, a syllabus of errors of the modernists, as he calls them, uh, Lamentabile Sane, July 1907. 
which condemns 65 propositions associated with the writings, definitely of Loisy, possibly of Tyrrell. They don't actually name any names in the document. You can go find this online. There are no names mentioned, no books mentioned. And it says that, um, it basically goes through, I won't read through this and make this too long, but it lists 65 propositions. Um, the historian Marvin O'Connell, who wrote one of the only good books about this, uh, it's called Critics on Trial, says it breaks it down into five categories. I found seven. Uh, in particular, there's there um, propositions concerning the church's teaching authority. Then secondly, the Bible and its interpretation. Uh, thirdly, revelation and dogma, the nature of revelation, but again, about whether it can, you know, is immutable or whatever, those sorts of things. Nature of Christ and his divinity. This is something that clearly concerns the law Z. The sacraments, which also, again, the way his doctrine, I, I explained Wazi's doctrine was basically something Tyrrell and the rest of them embrace. It, it, it flows from their, their historical thinking. And then the structure of the church, uh, the nature of its hierarchy, right? This is the other thing that seems to creep in to some of this. This is the idea that, again, the idea that um, um, that religious uh, teaching, religious doctrine, religious dogmas are merely the expression of the community and its beliefs and not of something, again, objective and those sorts of things. And then finally, the nature of doctrine, which again, same, same thing, talking about its historical nature. Uh, again, uh, read this for yourself, but it, yeah, fairly detailed set of, it's about four pages long set of um, uh, propositions. And then the final condemnation comes in, or the final one, the big coup de grace comes in 1907 with the issuing of Pascendi Domenici Gregis. And this is the one, this is, and this is a long document as uh, papal encyclicals go. He printed out, it's over 40 pages long. And it gives a detailed refutation of what it takes to be the modernist system of thought. Uh, it calls it the synthesis of all heresies, uh, does the document. And uh, we'll come back to this because it gets criticized, does this document by modern scholars, because it seems to think all of these doctrines, it, uh, it, it, it seems to talk about at certain points as if every single modernist have held every single one of these doctrines and that it was a sort of coherent self-contained system. I don't think he actually goes that far, but it does treat them all as a whole. Uh, lumps them all together, lumps all the people together. And one of the things that it, it gets, um, <clears throat> it gets that uh, modern historians and people who are sympathetic to modernists, to be honest with you, uh, upset about it is it's a really, it's kind of an angry document in some ways. It really does lay into, again, it doesn't name names. There's no people lamed in this. This is one of the reasons why there's confusion about it. Um, this is why some people think, uh, think that Newman is being condemned by this document. He wasn't. Uh, Maurice Blondel thought he was being condemned by this document. He was terrified of that philosopher I mentioned earlier. Uh, the Pope actually sent him a letter um, um, reassuring that it didn't refer to him. But it basically uh, criticized, well, it had one big criticism, because again, one of the things that uh, Wazin and other people were big about was that modern scientific biblical history, modern scientific study of the Bible had disproved traditional teachings. And the basic big criticism that the, the encyclical makes is that they say they're doing history, but really what they're doing is they're they're sneaking their philosophy into these texts. In other words, they're saying that these, you know, these facts they're lining up disprove traditional teachings when what they're really doing is insinuating a, philosoph a philosophy 
which is at odds with the church's teaching and which interprets them in a way that's totally at odds with the church's teaching and identifies basically three big components to this philosophy that it accuses them of having one is what it calls an agnosticism about religious truth this has to do with the idea that again i already talked about earlier how going back to schleiermacher and some other people and and some of these french thinkers that you know um, that essentially you know language is ever changing and it can't capture totally truth uh, in a set of uh, propositions or a phrase or, or or a dogma, and therefore it has to sort of change over time because and, it, and again something like Wazi actually says this he believes in an internal unchanging truth or God it's just we, our human mind can't grasp it. Um, there's a sort of um, um, skepticism about human reason its ability to grasp this uh, and that's what they mean by agnostic the text calls it agnosticism about truth um, uh, in terms of religion it also talks about the error of vital imminence and this goes back to some of these ideas i've already talked about here this is one of the reasons why they thought maurice blondell was condemning this it condemns the idea that religion is nothing more than this experience of this vital imminence within mankind that all the religious truths in the Bible weren't the result of something objectively, you know, God gave to mankind, but they were a result of the religious experience, the interior, you know, subjective experience of the apostles, basically. Uh, and that all religion can be reduced to that. Uh, it's one of the big claims that he makes here. And then, then finally, I'm using a term the text doesn't use, but it accuses them of what it calls evolutionism, but what I call historicism. It's kind of what you've already heard from Wazi, that quotation I gave you. This is the idea that basically um, all sort of um, all sort of the church's teachings are sort of absolutely historical rel relative. They are peculiar to their particular particular epoch, particular time and place. They don't have the same meaning for later epochs. And in fact, in later periods, we can't really truly understand what people uh, back then believed. It, it involves a sort of agnosticism about the past in a weird way. But it's, it's sort of absolute historicism in a weird way is what it accuses them of. Furthermore, uh, it complains about two things, and I'll mention this. Complains about the modernist use of media. It says at one point that whenever one of these modernists, and again, doesn't identify any of these modernists, whenever the, one of these modernists gets called out on you know, teaching things that are opposed to the church, um, their friends in the press make uh, martyrs out of them by being like they're victims of the of the the hierarchy for being whatever uh, being you know and they talk like this uh, Loisy he has a kind of victim complex Duchenne they talk about you know you know these are worse than the inquisitors the Rome is like a you know they're gonna burn us to the stake and all this stuff this is all nonsense but uh, they make themselves uh, martyrs in the eyes of 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 not just uh, of, of secular media basically. Something to keep in mind. It sounds familiar. <laughs> uh, they're the one of the first people to do this within the church. It also accuses and also says the roots of the modernists doing this psychologically are, are pride, the sin of intellectual pride, right? Their idea that they have authority over the gospel, its texts, and not the church. Um, and then finally, I should say measures of suppression, because a large chunk of the last third or so of the text is taken up with uh, measures that 
the Pope wants bishops to engage in to suppress uh, modernists, to get them out of seminaries, to keep them from teaching in, in Catholic universities. They, it uh, calls for, for example, the setting up of vigilance committees in dioceses, uh, people to sort of, again, almost, I don't know how you put it, almost, I guess, spy on people or inform on people um, if they, they teach modernist things. In, uh, in seminaries and stuff like this. I mentioned this because this is one of the controversies about it. I'll come back to this in a moment. Uh, but it sets up a series of measures to repress um, these ideas from being propagated because uh, it sees them as basically undermining it. So at one point he actually says, not just undermining the Catholic faith, but any sort of religious faith. If you accept these ideas, uh, there's no way any religious faith could probably endure With Pascendi Gregi Dominis, Pascendi Dominici Gregis, a bridge has been crossed. And in fact, um, in the next uh, couple of years, you will have um, uh, both Tyrrell and uh, Loisy will be excommunicated. Uh, both of them by this point, and this is to their credit, um, effectively are either relieved or welcome this. By this point, they have both publicly taken positions, not just. Um, teaching doctrines that are against the church's faith. They have publicly defied Rome. They want out. Uh, and so they do. They, they, they basically are excommunicated. Uh, Tyrrell actually writes a book the last year of his life trying to explain what he means by all this. And he actually, uh, again, probably the best exposition of his work in some ways. Um, uh, but uh, he dies in 1909. With him, effectively, the, the sort of movement is over because Loisy goes, he uh, becomes a secular university professor is no longer part of the church, even though he still writes about this stuff. Um, same year, uh, same year, uh, same year he dies. Uh, Romolo Murray, the head of the um, uh, Lega Democratica Nazionale, um, the Democratic uh, Activist Organization, is um, is uh, excommunicated. He, by the way, will eventually be reconciled with the church uh, in his life. Uh, and um, in fact, by 1910, I want to say there's been, in the, I don't actually have the numbers with me, I want to say only about 10 priests, and it's only priests as far as I'm aware, either leave the church or excommunicate. And this actually takes place over, there actually is one person who's excommunicated, Buono uh, Nuti, who's actually excommunicated in 1925 of all things, another one excommunicated in 1930. But it's about 10 people. Three of them just leave the priesthood altogether and the Catholic Church, but about seven people excommunicated uh, in total. What happens, though, the same year, 1909, um, that he's excommunicated, Murray, is that an Italian monsignor in the Vatican named Umberto Benini forms an association he calls the Sodalitium Pianum, Sodality of Pius. Uh, and begins, he actually founds, he actually has a um, newspaper or whatever in Rome. And he is uh, someone who makes it his mission uh, to stamp out modernism in the church. And he begins publishing, um, he begins basically concocting a series of sort of uh, network of if better, lack of better term, informers across Italy and France to sort of ferret out people who are supposed to be modernists. And this leads to, and this is something they sometimes call themselves integrists, uh, Catholic integrists, uh, Catholic integrists, integra integralism, basically, integrism, where you put it in French. Uh, the idea being, the notion being that, you know, true Catholics believe 
the entirety of Catholic doctrine integral. They're integral, I believe, all the doctrines. Some of the techniques, and this is one of the really controversial parts of this, is um, they begin to adopt some of the same tactics that the um, modernists use. They use, you know, pseudonyms, pseudonyms to make denunciations of people as modernists. They use uh, anonymous accusations to denounce people as modernists. They go so far as to have uh, students denounce their professors. And again, this, if you're like, well, you know, and this, this sounds bad. I mean, this is the kind of thing the Nazis would do in the 1930s um, when they wanted to get people out of schools who weren't teaching what they wanted to teach. So it kind of got out of hand. It led to a, a, a sort of state of panic among a lot of uh, churchmen. People like, again, Maurice Blondell thought he was gonna be denounced at any day. Eventually, Pius IX, Pius X, excuse me, will die in 1914. His successor, uh, Benedict XV, will issue an encyclical in 1914 calling for peace, um, the Sodalitium Pianum dissolves itself briefly. For a time, it, it starts up again. It has to be dissolved by order of the Pope directly in 1921. And so there is a sort of overreach in the aftermath of all this, at least with the methods that some of these people use. And one of the things Benedict XV actually condemns is people taking on to themselves the role of, you know, judge of doctrine that's not theirs. <laughs> He's almost certainly referring to these integrists or whatever. Um, but that time, basically, the the after the the um, the uh, affair is played out, and for the better part of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. They're really, this seems to have gone underground or at least been defeated. The movements defeated, as we'll, I don't have time to go into here. The ideas did not uh, uh, go away. They didn't really went underground. That's a story for another time. But thus ends the modernist crisis. So just a few thoughts and reflections to, to wrap up here. <clears throat> Big question, were the modernists right? Does the church have to adapt itself to modern society or modern times to in order to, to do what? You know, spread the gospel, survive, regain its place in society? The, the modernists were never all that clear on this. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, of course, there are things in the church's teaching which are they're they're reformable, they're changeable. Other things that are not, you have to make those distinctions first. And in some ways, of course, this, of course, it's going to adapt to this time or that. It's more of the question of what things can you adapt and what you can't. The modernists, of course, touch things that you can't. <laughs> you can't doubt the divinity of Christ and be a Christian, I don't think. Um, all apologies to any Unitarians who might be watching this. Yeah, it's not gonna work. Um, you can't doubt the Trinity, I don't think. Apologies to all the Unitarians who might be watching this, all the Arians who might be watching this. There are certain things that are non-negotiable and, and yeah, they are um, perennial if you wanna put it that way. So, and I, in effect, in a lot of ways, again, they were asking questions that most people were asking in the late 19th century, but how can the church reach modern people, people who have tuned it out, people who have uh, thought of it as being nothing more than an authoritarian, blah, blah, blah. They have some silly idea in its head. Um, I think most people, maybe if you're just a dyed-in-the-wool traditionalist who really hates them, that at least the questions they asked had some validity. Their answers, uh, quite frankly, they were poison. <laughs> um, I think that the papacy was right to condemn those. And, then, and by the way, those some people deny it, but well, this gets to the next question is that this is something modern scholars talk about. Right? Some of them claim that Pius X in quote unquote invented modernism. That is to say, there was no co such coherent thing as modernism. 
that he just basically lumped all these people together who didn't share any of these ideas. And therefore, um, I don't know. I, 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 yeah, I, this is not really, I don't think, I don't think this holds up that well. <laughs> um, one of these um, modernists, the one I mentioned earlier, the one, the one, uh, the one woman, Maud Peter, who was a, I didn't have to mention this, was a uh, friend of um, George Tyrrell, who was a nun actually, a, nun, a religious order, who became a, a follower of his embrace modernist ideas also fell in love with him he didn't reciprocate uh nothing happened between them but there, there's this weird stuff going on but anyway um she said later on that basically Pius X got the outlines of it right and he did um those ideas weren't necessarily in every thinker but they were all they're all ideas that are one way or the other if you embrace them they basically sort of they basically will be corrosive of the rest of catholic doctrine that's the problem with those ideas uh, one of the things uh, Benedict the Fifteenth mentioned in his encyclical, he talks about the the modernists. You know, because one of the, some of these again, when you say modernists, what do we mean by that? It can be kind of a vague thing. I can see why some scholars would think this is kind of a, you know, you're making these charges against people, not giving, you know, names and stuff like that. Um, I lost my train of thought totally. No. Um, some of these modernists you know, might have thought, hey, maybe we can modernize this aspect of Catholic doctrine, but not the rest of it. And the fact of the matter is, Benedict XV mentions this in his encyclical, Catholic doctrine is kind of an integral whole. You change one of it, it sort of affects the rest. Uh, John Henry Newman says this in his work on the development of Christian doctrine. Christian doctrine has to be taken as a whole. You remove one of those pieces and it just sort of falls apart. Uh, if you guys have ever read uh, Confucius, but this says this, this. I know it's a Catholic thing, but uh, Confucius says somewhere that um, he who sets to work upon a different strand destroys the whole fabric. It kind of captures this: is that Catholic doctrine has to be taken, the gospel has to be taken whole, with all of its implications. And you know, we talked about this before on the, the the talk on development. It does develop, but it has to be taken in in that way. I just don't think those ideas are compatible. And in fact, you know, Pius, Pius predicted that some of the people who held these ideas would leave the church, and some of them did. And, you know, I say this, this is, you know, we'll come back to this in a second. Um, it, it, it's, you know, there's more to it than just saying, you know, he was, and he was, I mean, the, the encyclical itself can be kind of harsh in some ways. That's one of the complaints against it was it has a, uh, it has a, a, a style that doesn't sound like a pope should sound. I actually have some agreements that he could be really, really shrill a document. This gets to the next question. Was the reaction of Rome excessive? Maybe in some particulars, in some particulars, yes. I think sometimes some of the things, some of the, maybe some of the, the methods they used weren't good, no. That having been said, they were right to be alarmed by these ideas. You know, the fact of the matter is there are objective things about the church's doctrine. They have a, a stable, meaning if you take things that are incompatible with it and try to put them together they won't work <laughs> they'll simply be in conflict together and they simply had to react to this they could not let it go i don't think and i think the this is something i don't have time to go into i think the, the proof of this is that when these ideas do do resurface and they resurface with a vengeance after the second vatican council 
you know, uh, Pius X predicted that once the, if these ideas ever got into circulation, it would cause a diminution, it would cause, you know, people lose their, I think that's fairly, I think it's fairly obvious those ideas can, can have that effect. It doesn't, it doesn't seem that like a big of a, 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 a statement to make to me. It was, however, excessive in some ways, and there's no doubt. Again, one of the things that um, one of the things that happened though is that Rome probably leaned a little bit too much on its authority when it did this, um, rubbed people the wrong way, and again, you, you know, it only takes one or two people to have a legacy of, you know, if you had one or two people who they may have formally submitted but were still like Loisy before, like in the 1890s. Uh, who still lived on as professors who, you know, it wouldn't take much to have that there. In fact, actually, that's the bigger criticism you should make of Pius X's efforts is that in the long run, it didn't actually get rid of the ideas. And the question was, could you, again, it's hard to get rid of ideas once they're in there. And I guess, again, especially against people who don't believe that there are stable objective truths because <laughs> they they're not talking about the same thing when they say the word, and they use words like dogma or doctrine that you are. Uh, or church, they, they give them totally different meanings because they have such a different philosophy about human nature, language. One of the you know key things here about that uh, that uh, Lavoisier embraced, which I think a lot of people, well, this gets us to the next thing here, theologians of the magisterium, uh, a lot of scholars embrace today is the idea that human nature is essentially mutable, that there are no parts of human nature that are stable, forget immutable, there's nothing that's, that doesn't change over time, which is a really, really highly debatable proposition, but it becomes very popular. It's a that historic. I call that historicism for a reason. It's a default mode of thinking in the academy. And that brings me to theologians in the church. I call this the crisis of modernism, not just because it's a big dramatic episode, but because it's a turning point uh, in the church's uh, life. Uh, the term crisis means you know turning point or whatever Greek think. <laughs> Don't call me on that. But this really marks a break because even though they managed to gain the submission of theologians, they get rid of some of them in the in the uh, the theological academy. Um, when modernist, modernist ideas more or less come back in the 1960s, this will wreak a revolution in the relationship between theologians and magisterium. Theologians used to be able to count on them being very, very conservative with regards to doctrine, with regards to adhering to tradition. To give you an example of this, in 1875, John Henry Newman wrote a book trying to explain uh, papal infallibility and why it wasn't, you know, there a lot of people in England thought this meant that, you know, Catholics couldn't think for themselves, something like this. And one of the questions Protestant has was, okay, if the Pope's infallible, what prevents him from just changing whatever doctrine he wants whenever he wants it? That's, that's first of all not what the Vatican Council said, but whatever. Like one of his replies was, that's one of his major. One of his major replies was, well, he couldn't do that because theologians would check him because he presumed that theologians would be faithful to tradition and faithful to the uh, to faithful to be more conservative. With the influence of modernist ideas as they spread into the academy, that is, <laughs> that situation is a 180 degree different today. And so that's a huge problem because that is, as we said before at the beginning, that is what theology is supposed to be, is the preservation of what, the, of what had been handed down to them as theologians. And yet they have imbibed not just the sort of critical 
methods, which you can actually combine critical methods with orthodoxy. That's not a big thing. But all the sort of philosophical assumptions that kind of went with it have gotten into the academic world. And there are a lot of theologians who, you know, I don't, I, I'm not gonna cast aspersions, but a lot of them, again, I just don't see how they can square these things with the faith as it really is supposed to be. Uh, and so this has created a, a really serious ongoing problem, obviously. And you can see how that conflicts with that earlier, yeah, I mentioned the earlier idea of the university and how the new one, one the idea that a theologian's, you know, their life is centered around scholarship, which is producing new knowledge, original scholarship, um, you know, influences their view of what the faith is supposed to be. Right, we're supposed to produce new insights into the faith for the for the new times or whatever, which is of course not what it's supposed to be. Also leads to a lot of conflict between academics and the magisterium uh, in the last fifty years or so, obviously. And finally, all this comes back to I think a question of truth. You know, is there? <clears throat> This, the modernist crisis, the modernist versus, you know, their opponents, you know, is there such a thing as truth? That's more or less, you know, immutable or at least stable, right? Um, can we know it? Uh, these things are called into question by these modernist ideals. Um, is there anything that's not subjective that we can know? Those sorts of things. These are big questions and they're a big dividing line. A lot of the Again, you can you can figure this out for yourself. If you know any of this about this, but a lot of these ideas that got applied to things like the divinity of Christ, and the authenticity of the Bible, and the part of the 20th century, have been since the 1960s applied to things like uh, moral theology, things like sexuality, stuff like that. It's one of the big arguments, right? Oh, well, the church's teaching was about you know you name it, contraception. Well, that was back. Society has changed, therefore the doctrine has to change. Similar comes back to, is it true? Is it really true that truth changes from epic to epic? Is it really true that every epic's that different, but they're totally hermetically sealed from each other in the way that Lazi mentioned? I mean, it's a very dubious idea when you think about it. I mean, modern, you've taken a history class in college. One of the first thing they tell you is our dates don't matter. And the reason why is because, you know, history doesn't work like a bunch of, you know, totally different epics. You know, uh, is it really true that we don't take anything from the ancient world and can't know it? And that's, I mean, but I, I'll take, just give you an idea of something totally secular. Our notions of public and private, right? Public and private law, public and private, you know, that distinction. That goes back to like Aristotle and Cicero. Um, we can understand them just fine. <laughs> the idea that truth is that sort of opaque to each other, that it, it, very questionable assumptions behind the modernists, to say the least. And I think a lot of them just not compatible with the Catholic faith um, in a lot of ways. So that is the end of the lecture. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Hope, um, I hope you guys uh, have a good time. Uh, the next lecture, um, just the last little message here, coming up in less than three weeks, um, is uh, on, um, oh boy, <laughs> I'm actually reading about this stuff right now in preparation for the lecture, uh, Dignitatis Humanae, Religious Liberty and the Church. On the, the writing of the, the document from Vatican II, the Declaration on Religious Freedom, Dignitatis Humanae, how it got there, and the controversy surrounding it. Did it alter the fundamentally alter the church's teaching? We'll talk about that a little bit. I'm not a theologian, so I can't give you total answers, but I'll talk about it, background and everything, give you my own opinions. 
And that's coming up on April 25th, 7 o'clock, 7 p.m. Uh, Guardian Angels Parish, Guardian Angels Catholic Church in Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, yeah, anyway, I can find more about it on uh, Countries in Church History's Facebook page, my website, uh, and you can access everything, YouTube channel, as well as my previous, previous lectures on Anchor Podcast. So please uh, subscribe, like, help me out, please spread the word. So um, that is all. I hope you guys have a, have a good one. And uh, uh, hopefully I'll hear from you guys um, uh, sooner rather than later. <laughs> Take care.